Grateful people, you may be seated, and I'll invite you again to turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis in the third chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Last Lord's Day, we read the larger context of this passage. I'll just read from verse 15 today. Just as I do so, note that this is the word of God being spoken uh, to the serpent in the garden, who is the instrument of Satan himself, who has just successfully seduced our first parents into sin. So this is our God's word uh, to Satan. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise Heal. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are seated here, far from heaven, in physical terms, but by faith, it's our desire to be right there by the power of your Spirit, in your presence where we can hear your voice even through your own weak instrument. We pray that you will grant this privilege to us in this place, in this hour, where heaven and earth do connect, where your word brings the sound of the Savior into our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first word of gospel hope is found in Genesis 3.15. It's the first glint, if you will, of gospel gold in the Bible. But it's in a very unlikely place, at least at first glance. It's found embedded, this gospel word, in a curse. Last week we looked at that broader context and we saw that God is speaking words of judgment. The pronouncement of judgment, otherwise known as a curse, is what the rest of this section is about. Satan and the woman and the man have each taken their part, their place, in turn, in rebellion against God, and they'll each receive God's sentence of judgment. Last week... We saw in looking at the whole and also beginning to look at this verse that there is even in the words of judgment, grace, at least towards man, at least towards the first father and the first mother there in the garden. God reveals something of his good intentions even as he speaks judgment to them. He had every right to cast them out of the garden, out of the 
earth, for that matter, just as he had cast the fallen angels out of heaven, instead, he declares war against the one who'd led them astray. And he makes known that he intends to win them back. God will fight for man. That's what we return to now in verse 15, this gospel in a curse. It's very bad news that God delivers to the serpent. But it's a word of good news for us at the same time. Here's how we'll spend our time. We have three questions to ask as we look more closely at verse 15. The first is, who exactly will be at enmity with whom? Then we'll look at how will the bruising of the woman's offspring actually come about? How will the bruising of the serpent actually come about? So let's answer those three questions the best of our ability this morning. Who exactly will be at enmity with whom? And as I raise that question, I want to draw your attention to the fact that there is some ambiguity in the answer to that question as it's found in verse 15. Sometimes verse 15 is called an oracle of judgment. If you went to look up the word oracle, you would probably come up with a definition like a prophecy of the future that contains some ambiguity. In other words, the full meaning comes to be clear with the passage of time. I don't think oracle is actually a biblical word, but that would apply to this particular prophecy. There's layers of meaning in the foretelling of the future that God gives in Genesis 3.15. There's actually been a great deal of discussion about that, and particularly about this question we're raising first. Who exactly is at enmity with whom? We realized last week it's saying something far more profound, that there's going to be this uh, relationship of some tension between humans and the reptiles we call snakes. Something much more is going on because there's something much more than a snake there in the garden. There's this dark power in the earth we come to know as Satan. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that in Genesis 3.15, God is actually foretelling two levels of hostility that will play out in the future from that moment. Two sets of enemies, if you will. Number one, God's foretelling hostility between all of Satan's offspring in the spiritual sense in which we talked about it and all of Eve's offspring in the spiritual sense in which we talked about it. In verse 15, the word for offspring is literally seed, and it's a word that can refer to either a single person or many people. You've encountered this in other places in the Bible. So, for example, Abram will say to God later in chapter 15, you have given me no seed. He's specifically talking about the fact that I don't have a son. He has a specific person in mind, the one that hasn't yet been given. You've given me no seed, singular. But then God will say to him, number the stars, so shall your seed be. And there you hear he's talking about many descendants and the word seed can have a kind of double meaning. So there's a translation issue that comes as we come to verse 15. Interestingly, verse 15 could just as accurately be translated, they shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise their heel. That would fit, not only with the Hebrew words, but with the context, the first part of the verse, which spoke clearly of many descendants. Satan would have offspring in the earth. They're those who spiritually are his children, which is to say they have followed him in their rebellion against God. And so will the woman. She will have many offspring as well. And seed can be plural in that sense. And so, in Genesis 3.15, God's foretelling hostility between all of Satan's offspring and all of Eve's offspring. He's foretelling a division between men and angels on one side and men and angels on another side. Fallen angels and men who are duped by the lie of Satan throughout history. And those unfallen angels that are faithful servants of God and those that are being redeemed and reclaimed by God. Two great societies, two great races of reasonable beings that are being spoken of, and the apostle, or rather, uh, God in Genesis 3.15 is foretelling this division between these two great communities. Jesus speaks of this enmity, and he says to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is talking about that enmity. It's an enmity between the church and the world, between the righteous and the wicked, as the Scriptures often puts it, the elect and the reprobate, the saved and the condemned, those who will inherit heaven, those who are destined for hell. Abraham Kuyper called these two hostile camps, if you will, the antithesis. This will mark the rest of human history There will be two kinds of rational creatures, whether men or angel. There will be two types, and they will be in a state of hostility to each other. By the way, watch for any number of different kinds of progressive efforts to erase that antithesis in our day. It's not new to our day. It's... Uh, been the case uh, ever since this word was first uttered, that this antithesis is erased. I remember my father testifying to the time when, as a brand new Christian in the best church that he could find there in Columbus, Georgia, as a brand new Christian, realizing that this was the perspective of the man who Preached from that pulpit. His favorite saying was the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and he'd added the livability of life. This was his creed. This is what he was standing for as a preacher. And uh, you hear that eraser, uh, the eraser of the antithesis. God is everyone's father. We're all brothers, and life really is livable. God is foretelling, though, hostility between all of Satan's offspring and all of Eve's offspring. There is something that's antithetical to who they are and what they stand for, what they're living for. God is also foretelling hostility between 
Satan himself, and one particular son of Eve. Remember I said the Hebrew word seed can refer either to a single person or to many people. And it's clear what most of our English Bibles uh, represented in this room today uh, have opted for as they've translated this passage. Uh, They've opted for the singular, haven't they? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in some cases, our English Bibles actually go so far as to translate seed by rendering it with the capital S. Or in some cases, the word is descendant, and they render it with a capital D. Why is this? Well, it's because ever since the coming of Christ, it has been obvious that he uniquely fulfills this oracle, this prophecy so early in the Bible. There's a hostility between all the children of Satan and the children of God, but Satan has a special hatred, a special hostility towards one particular descendant of the woman. And this war will in a decisive way be fought between Satan and that one seed, that one son of Eve. By the way, this is how Christians have interpreted Genesis 3.15, but it's fascinating to me that this is not only a Christian understanding of Genesis 3.15. Long before Christ, those Jews who translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, rendered it the same way. They rendered it, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. And what those Jewish men were recognizing is that Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy of the Messiah. It's a prophecy of a particular son of Eve who would come and who would fulfill this prophecy. So already the scriptures are speaking of the Messiah. And how are they speaking of Messiah? Well, as a warrior, as a a man who goes into battle against God's arch enemy. So that's with the question, who exactly will be at enmity with whom? There are two sets of enemies, or rather there's two communities with specific Two individuals within each, one and the, one and the other, who are at enmity. Question number two. How will the bruising of the woman's offspring come about? Let's talk first about that, and then we'll talk about what will be to us a much more pleasant subject, uh, the bruising of Satan himself. Genesis 3.15 says, He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This word bruise uh, is translated in different ways. It could be translated crush. Job 9, Job himself uses this word to talk about how God is treating him. He says, for God crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. And it's clear this word to bruise carries the idea of wounding by means of striking. Uh, You can see a snake capable of doing that to a man with his poisonous fangs, 
as he strikes the man. Something a man could do with a snake by striking with a weapon or a stick. This is what God is telling Satan in the final clause of Genesis 3.15. You will wound the woman's offspring. You've already wounded her. You'll wound her children. You have the power to do that. I will not yet take that power from you. You will indeed do great harm to the seed of the woman. How so? Well, we'll consider that seed means both of those things we just saw. We'll say first, our Lord's suffering at the hand of Satan is predicted here. Our Lord Jesus' sufferings at the hand of Satan are predicted. Think about it this way. When God there in the garden addresses himself to Satan in the form of the serpent and says, you shall bruise his heel, he has a particular moment in time in mind. One in which a particular descendant of Eve will fall under Satan's violence. That descendant of Eve who was anointed by God to lead his people in battle against Satan will be wounded in the battle. This made me think this week of how our Lord Jesus was so keenly aware as he approached the cross of Satan's presence and Satan's power. Satan's agency and all that he was about to experience. Can I just remind you, John's gospel especially brings this out. Jesus, early on in John 6, is reflecting, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Speaking of Judas, of course, knowing that Judas would betray him and recognizing that Judas was now the pawn. Satan. Remember what he says during the Last Supper? We're told by John the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then comes the moment in that final supper when Jesus gives the morsel of bread to Judas. And we're told after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're to do do quickly. Just a little later, Jesus in John 14 says to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Jesus was mindful how his death, the circumstances of it would be orchestrated by his arch enemy. Do you see that? His pains And sufferings are the result of Satan's bitter hostility towards him. I'm not sure we're always as mindful of that as we should be. And for good reason, we are right to think, brothers and sisters of God, the Father as the ultimate architect of the atonement, indeed. And we're right to think of Jesus voluntarily going to the cross to offer himself up there, right indeed. But neither of those realities exclude the fact that 
Satan's the author of the evil, of those events. All the wickedness and the betrayal, all the wickedness in the calls for his crucifixion, all the wickedness in the compromise of the authorities, this was all inspired by the devil. So the wounding of our Savior was truly the result of that serpent's venom. We're going to be mindful of that as we come back to the table, recognize how that was the great moment as we're remembering the shed blood, the broken body, where we're going to be recognizing this is the fulfillment of the wounding of the seed of Eve. It's first given in Genesis 3.15. So our Lord's sufferings are predicted here. But our own sufferings are also predicted. Our sufferings at the hand of Satan. Remember, uh, it could just as well be translated, you shall bruise their heel. And God had spoken of war between Satan and Eve's spiritual offspring. So this is Further, a prediction of the wounding and suffering that's inflicted by Satan on all the seed of the woman. And you have to admit, that's a pretty good picture of the role that Satan has in the life of a Christian, isn't it? A snake in the grass, striking suddenly the foot of a man. He attacks us this way, doesn't he? Out of nowhere. When we're least suspecting it, unto our pain, and even deadly consequence. As I preached at Nathaniel's ordination a couple of weeks ago, I was reflecting on Paul's great concern that as he, in this case, planted a church in Thessalonica and saw people coming uh, to Christ there, responding to the gospel, when he's taken away by circumstances outside of his control, he's filled with anxiety, and he, he says, why? When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Satan has power to wound And so much of the New Testament is devoted to putting us on guard against him because of his ability to wound the seed of Eve. If you don't take Satan seriously, you're not taking Genesis 3.15 seriously. It speaks of the future and speaks of the serpent who will bruise the heel of the seed of Eve. This is why we paid so much attention to the way Satan came to the woman, the way that he tempted Eve, because he comes to us in the same way. This is the hard part of this word because it reflects upon Satan's role in our lives as well as Satan's attack on the Savior. Let's look lastly at how the bruising of the serpent would come about. Genesis 3.15 speaks not only of the serpent being able to continue to bruise the heel of the seed of Eve, but it also says, He shall bruise 
your head. Let's talk about that. So the same word is used for what Satan does as what the seed of Eve does. Bruise, striking unto wounding. But there's a very big difference between the wounds. Same word, but very big difference between the wounds for the simple reason that Satan is spoken of as inflicting a wound on the foot of the seed of the woman. Seed of the woman inflicts a wound to the head of Satan. The same blow would have very different effects, wouldn't it? Depending on where it landed. Everyone knows the difference on a battlefield between a foot wound and a head wound. Brothers and sisters, this is where Genesis 3.15 becomes such good news indeed. This is where the gospel is found in the midst of a curse. How is that part of the curse fulfilled in good news? Well, the mortal wounding of Satan by Christ is being predicted here. God says to Satan, he shall bruise your head. And again, he has a particular moment in time, in mind. It's the same moment That Jesus had in mind when he said in John 12, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cross because he goes on to say, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John adds, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Christians, you know that the death of Christ on the cross was not only his being wounded. You know that it was also the wounding of the enemy of God's people. Can I read to you from a Scottish Presbyterian? It's from a book on the atonement, on the cross, the doctrine of the cross. And he takes up, rightly so, this passage in John 12 where Jesus says, now the prince of this world will be driven out. Speaking of what would happen there at the cross. This man's name is George Smeaton and he writes, Up till now, the world had belonged to one who was undoubtedly its Lord and who is called by Christ the prince of this world in as far as he held it by right of conquest. Not that our Lord in so speaking meant to acknowledge his title as either legitimate or irreversible, he meant that he had succeeded in virtue of a successful usurpation in becoming the world's actual king and in making men his lawful captives. But a new and just rule was at hand. In a word, as a result of the cross, the world passes into other hands One prince yields his dominion, and another enters into rightful possession. As Satan occupied a secure and impregnable position, so long as the vicarious sacrifice was not offered, so the vantage ground from which he'd long ruled the world was lost the moment divine justice was satisfied. Mortal wounding of Satan by Christ is predicted in Genesis 3.15. And it occurs to me to say that if we've been right 
to infer that the one who's entered the garden and was standing there addressing first Satan and then the woman and the man is the second person of the Godhead. If we've been right to see this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself, then when he speaks of the seed of the woman, he's speaking of himself. First and foremost, he's saying to Satan in so many words, we shall meet again. This is why the apostles speak of the cross, not just in terms of the Lord's suffering, but also in terms of his victory. Paul in Colossians 2, he speaks of Christ having disarmed the powers and authorities and making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And sisters, This decisive mortal blow struck at our enemy must explain why James, for example, would say something so otherwise strange about someone who is otherwise so powerful, the devil. James chapter 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan is Unable to overwhelm a watchful warrior Christian. In the wake of the cross, in the armor of the Lord, we have the upper hand. Because Satan has suffered a death blow there at the cross. He may not be dead yet, but he's suffered a mortal wound. He's not the threat he once was. To put it in the Chronicles of Narnia terms, the white witch may not yet be dead, but she's fled from her castle, and Mr. Tumnus is coming alive with all else who've been turned to stone in her courtyard. Does this raise a question in your mind, as it has in mind more than once? If the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where both the seed of Eve is wounded because Satan is so an agent in it, and Satan's head is crushed. Has it ever crossed your mind? Why would Satan have masterminded the evil behind it? I'll speculate. Perhaps this oracle in Genesis 3.15 was too ambiguous for him fully to understand. Perhaps it only became clear after The fact, perhaps the great deceiver was successful in deceiving himself as he sought to put Christ on that cross only to be crushed by what Christ did there. The mortal wounding of Satan by Christ is predicted in Genesis 3.15. One more thing that's predicted. The final conquest of Satan by Christ's people is also predicted here. Remember, it could be translated, they shall bruise your head. All the offspring of Eve taking part 
in combating Satan and ultimately finishing him off because for all the decisiveness of this head wound that Jesus inflicts on Satan at the cross, he is still thrashing about, doing harm, needs to be finished off. And that's exactly Christ's commission to the church. Finish him off. You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Peter is being called to do that he so gloriously begins the fulfillment of is the plundering of Satan, who's helpless to stop him. Hades, the place of the dead, Jesus speaking of the church, is on the attack, waging war against Death itself, delivering those who are under the power of death. You've heard me say this more than once. Gates are defensive structures. Gates that don't prevail are gates that give way against an assault. It's the assault that Jesus is calling on Paul to wage in Acts 26 when he says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You can think of it this way. God calls the church to take the victory of Jesus over Satan on the cross and to press it to its full advantage. The cross was the D-Day. Turn the tide of the war. And our ministry is the march Across France, all the way into Hitler's bunker. Brothers and sisters, actually, the scriptures won't let us see Christ as the only one involved in crushing the serpent. It's with Genesis 3.15, indisputably in mind, that Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Listen to John Calvin referencing that passage. He says, the whole church of God under its head will gloriously exult over him. The power of bruising Satan is imparted to faithful men. And thus the blessing is the common property of the whole church. Another commentator on that verse says, there were two victories to be obtained over Satan. By the first, his head would be bruised on the feet of Christ. By the second, the rest of his body would be bruised on the feet of believers. You realize what this means about the declaration of war that God is making in Genesis 3. It means that God is not only going to fight for his people, He's going to fight with them. They'll not merely be his prize in the victory in the battle. They will become his weapons. He'll not merely rescue us from the captivity of Satan. He will call us and equip us to overthrow our former captor. You and I will have a part in this great battle. The battle that Christ waged there on the cross, we are utterly Helpless standing by 
watching our champion win on our behalf. But ever since then, we're enlisted as soldiers as he marches to press to the full his victory. So, brothers and sisters, in Genesis 3.15, we have gospel in its biggest, fullest sense. If you will, it's not just soteriology, how we're saved. It's also eschatology. What will come of all this? This world and this fight that's begun. We'll not just be saved from our enemy, according to Genesis 3.15. We'll be victorious over him. Not just that his rule will be overthrown by Christ, but by Christ as he leads his people who are united to him by faith. So these are the first words of God after the fall of man foretelling a crushing defeat for his opponent, victory for the seed and for all the seed of the woman who are united to him. So my friends, as our Savior was wounded, bruised on the heel, we partake of his wounds. We too suffer in the battle. But as our Savior inflicted the great mortal wound, we will too partake of his victory. This is the gospel in a curse against Satan. Amen. Take this to the Lord in prayer. What a privilege it is for us, O Lord, in the place of our day, looking back over so much of the fulfillment of this oracle of Genesis 3, to see what you were saying to see what you were foretelling, to see in a way that even the angels once upon a time longed to inquire into. We thank you all over again for going to war for us. We're thankful that you have raised up from our own number as men of flesh, one who is capable of delivering this death blow to our enemy. And if there's any room for more gratitude, we are thankful that you have privileged us with a place in the fight and therefore a place in that final victory. We thank you that you have crushed Satan under the foot of your son, our Savior King. And we thank you that you will crush Satan one day under our feet as we follow him. Hear our praise and our thanks in his name. Amen.